And yeah, the first question that pops in my head actually is, why did you ditch your aura ring? I saw that you tweeted about that a little while ago. I have an aura ring, so I was curious about your rationale. Well, I purchased an aura ring probably, I'd say a little bit more than two years ago. And like I'm sure many people do, you buy it because you want to see how you're sleeping and hopefully improve that over time once you, once you establish your baseline. And I wore it for probably six months. And then eventually it was just like, I don't feel like I'm getting that much from it. Like once I had the initial insights and it literally went into a drawer. Oh, wow. And maybe like three months ago, I was like fishing for something and I found the aura ring. It's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pull it, pull it back out. And what I found surprisingly, as I tuned into my experience while I was using it, and, and obviously I think products like that tend to give us a little bit more heightened awareness of, of how we're sleeping. And what I found was, is it was causing me quite a bit of anxiety mm. and and I guess this is a thing because there's an exchange on Twitter that there's been studies done that there are certain people that tend to sleep worse when they have an aura because they know it's being tracked. Right. And so I guess it's a little bit more conscious. And so eventually I'm just like, yeah, I feel like I'm not getting quality sleep when this thing is is tethered to my body. And so I ended up ditching it for a second time. And, uh, and, and this is, I think, a bigger theme, which is I'm not convinced that we need a lot of devices and sensors to tell us how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of people that are disembodied that aren't connected to their body. And so a product like an aura ring is incredibly helpful because it kind of surfaces some of what's unconscious. Whereas I'm trying to live a lot more embodied. And mm-hmm. as a result, like I know if I'm getting good sleep or not. I also have two little kids, so you know the, it, I'm I'm not getting as as good a sleep as I would like right now. Right, and you don't want just to be told that over and over again every morning by your aura ring. Yeah, but after a while, I think we know if we're tuned into our body whether we're getting enough rest or not. Yeah, you you hit on a theme there, which is this tendency that a lot of modern ambitious people have, I have this tendency to outsource our thinking or our intuitions to devices and frameworks and concepts and things that are outside of the body. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing to do sometimes to also just get into this reflective mode in a way that looks at your life from the third person perspective, whether it's a device like the aura ring or even somebody else's take on what you're up to. But Mm -hmm there's a risk there and you use the word disembodied. There's a risk that you might become disembodied. And I I have a certain meaning for that term, but I wonder, what do you mean when you say disembodied? What I mean by disembodied and, and I should, before I go into this, I should say that I am an Enneagram type seven. Very nice. For those (laughs) in the crowd that, that enjoy that. And so what does that mean? It means that I'm, a head type. And so I tend to live in my head. So I, I, before I go into a little bit about what does disembodied mean to me, um, I can relate to not being embodied mm. because I tend to like to be in my head. Being in my head is, is a place of comfort. Mm. Now that said, 
over the years, beginning with my meditation practice that I started, call it nine or so years ago, a decade ago, slowly followed by sobriety and now kind of this longer healing path that I've been on, what I realize is that when we're able to really be in our body and fully, you know, whether you want to call, call it like awareness of our body, our emotions, our sensations, there's so much data. And if we allow ourselves to be with that, we can learn a tremendous amount about ourselves and how we respond to our environment. Mm-hmm. And so it's just my way of saying when we're disembodied, we lose out on so much information that otherwise we could use to, you know, hopefully live a, a better life. Yeah. It's, um, ignoring a primary channel of, of signaling. And, um, I think you can do that for decades and then end up like living somebody else's life. Yeah. Yeah. And another way it shows up is, I mean, it, it really started for me. So I've lived with a f- fair amount of chronic pain in my chest for mm. over, I mean, almost 20 years. Damn. Started shortly after I finished uh, college. I was working at Microsoft and I started getting pain in my chest. So naturally I went to the, the ER, saw a doctor and they did a test and they said, your heart is fine. I think it's heartburn. So then I went and I saw a whole host of GI specialists. They're like, uh, you seem fine to us. To make a long story short, this has persisted. And right before I got sober, the tension in my chest was really getting to a place where I was concerned and I would ruminate and I would, as my teachers, Jim and Diana from the conscious leadership group would call it, I'd go into these cognitive emotive loops and I would basically put, try to push away what I was experiencing in my body. Mm. Like I didn't even want to deal with it. I was like almost like, um, repressing and suppressing my experience because it got to a point where I couldn't, there's no diagnosis, but here I was having this pain. And so my coping mechanism was to try to even just detach from it. Mm -hmm using substances and things like that. Eventually it's what helped me get sober because I realized that was, you know, I was, I I was causing it to myself, but being embodied helps us actually be with our experience. And many years later, I'm now doing work with a somatic body worker to help, you know, unravel some of the, I mean, it's basically anxiety and constriction in my chest and abdomen from trauma and other mm. sorts of conditioning from much younger in life. Yeah. Just to, to relate to that. I also have chronic pain that, uh, from two joint injuries and, uh, mm-hmm. they, it's always like kind of humming in the background. It's like kind yeah, of like same. a version of arthropathy. Yeah. And I so I've had, um, basically multiple opportunities to, to like shape my attention towards it. And I know exactly what you're talking about when there's that impulse to, to move away. Um, or it's almost like your, your body's like this house and it has, it's like a mansion with all these rooms, but you're occupying like just the attic. Like you're just hanging out in this one room because there's like stuff in the other room that you just like don't want to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it's like the sense, the sense 
sensations are just unpleasant. But then paying more attention to it and really uh, getting very precise about what it is that I w- I'm actually experiencing, like say in my ankle, inevitably it, it, it gives away, it makes me realize how much of the pain is actually uh, a layer of concepts and um, aversions and uh, ideas about the future, ideas about what it means, like all these things are actually baked mm-hmm. into the pain sensations. And when I'm avoiding it, they they bloom. But when I pay close attention to it, eventually it starts to reduce into things I can have equanimity with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can really relate is when I'm able to be with the pain in my chest and I can really be with it what I notice, and by the way, I should say it took me many years to be able to just sit in my heart center without mm. trying to push, push it, push my attention away. And now I'm able to sit with it and, and see how that pain and those sensations just naturally morph. And sometimes it comes in and it dissolves. And so by being embodied, I think it, it really helps. Like there's an intelligence to it, uh, and I think there's also the ability to see that a lot of these things that we experience in our bodies that we tell ourselves are really scary. Um, you know, they're impermanent, just like so many things. Mm-hmm. So, um, not, not, not like so many things, like everything, like everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything. Uh, that cues up like a bunch of different paths that I, I want to explore, but I think it might be good to um, give some like bio points about you. So you're, you're an executive coach and you focus on professionals going through like major life transitions. Yep. Um, and you're also a writer and, and podcaster, but prior to that, you, you were a partner at a multi-billion dollar VC firm and I, you also had a career in tech. So you've gone through your own life mm-hmm. transitions. And so I'm curious. Um, and then you, you, you've been open about this and you mentioned it a moment ago, but you also had a, a sobriety journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you get into coaching? And if you want to draw a thread between some of those, uh, bio milestones I mentioned, um, yeah. that might be interesting to listeners. Yeah. The, the, the path to coaching really started in June of 2013. I was listening to this week in startups with mm-hmm. Calcanis and his guest was Jerry Colonna from Reboot. And I had no idea what coaching was at the time, even though I had been at, at this point in, in business for almost you know, over a decade. The idea of coaching, I just was not on my radar. And at and that point, were you working in venture capital? It's a great, great question. Yep. I was, I was um, at the time I was at a firm in New York called La- what's known now as Lair Hippo Ventures, one of the top seed funds in New York. Uh, where I was a principal and I just, I heard Jerry talk and I was, I was just immediately attracted to him and overall his message was like, Oh, this guy's working with founders and helping them in a way that investors just aren't do, like investors aren't even thinking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of the reason why this really resonated with me is because the vast majority of my friends are entrepreneurs and as is my wife. And so I, I immediately saw the need because of all these offline conversations I was having. And then maybe like, Oh, and then I actually emailed Jerry on a whim 
and mm. met him shortly after and just had a conversation. We explored a coaching relationship that never materialized, but it like planted a seed. And then two years later, I went to a reboot, what I think they call boot camp. And I come home from it and I said to my wife, I think I want to be a coach. And she said, oh, you can totally do that later in life when you retire. Like kind of right. like shrugged it off because here I was like on partner track at one of the top funds in New York. You know, I was, I was a principal and then partner at RRE Ventures in New York, actually one of the oldest VC funds in New York. And, and so she was just like, yeah, you know, you can do that later in life. And, and what happened was, is in 2015, I got sober and between 2015 and 2017, I spent a lot of time on the cushion meditating mm -hmm. and journaling and being coached. And what I started to realize was, is I wasn't really happy where I was at RRE, despite you know, all the outward signs of success, you know, on the board, deploying millions of dollars a year on the boards of some great companies. And finally I was just like, I don't think this is for me. And mm. so in March of 2017, I walked in and I resigned and my partners are like, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't have a plan. And I basically spent six months on sabbatical where I was still on the boards, helping the firm. And I just started thinking a lot about what I wanted to do and coaching just kept on coming to the surface. And, you know, I've basically been doing this ever since. Now that said, there's been, I was oscillating for several years between being an investor and being a coach. So after I became a coach, a firm in New York, actually, I think one of the best firms in New York, primary venture partners convinced me to come on board as a venture partner and then partner. I was there for 18 months and finally I'm just like, yeah, I, I think I'm ready to leave the investing world behind and move fully into coaching. And that was, that was, uh, I guess fall of 2019. So mm. I've really been coaching since 2017, summer of 2017, but really professionally as my main thing, uh, since 2019 or so. Um, I'm curious about the moment where you decided that you were going to quit uh, and you didn't even know what you were going to do next. Was there, was there an inflection point or was it like some slow burn? Like, was there some, did you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I got to quit? Well, it was a slow burn. It, it was a mm -hmm. very slow burn and I'll spare a lot of the details, but there was a moment in J January of 2017 my wife and I knew we were going to try to have kids that year. And so we said, where would we go in the world knowing that it's probably going to be unlikely we'll be able to go there when we have kids. And we mm -hmm. were like, let's go to New Zealand. So we went to New Zealand for a few weeks. And while I was there, I was negotiating a deal and a few things happened internally and between the entrepreneur and, and basically as I was on one of these long drives, cause we were drive around the country, both islands, 
it just, I said to my wife, I got to leave. Mm. And then it took me almost two months to really get the courage to, to actually do it. But it, it was definitely on one of the longer drives on that trip where I was just like, okay, I'm ready. Yeah. I always joke that vacations are like psychedelic experiences for people where you need at least a week so that there's three days of no work behind you and three days of no work ahead of you. And then you're just like popped out of your normal life. And then it allows you to, to see things with new eyes. And just like any psychedelic experience, you, the, the hard part is the integration and you know, you get I'm, the insights and like, how I'm do you write, then I'm, I'm writing about them? this right now. I'm, I'm oh, amazing. literally writing about this, this very concept right now. Uh, what, what sort of uh, things are you exploring? Well, it's, it's slightly different, but related. But the point that I make is, well, I should back up because there's, there's some context required. I met a super fascinating company called Journey that is attempting to bring meditators into the jhanas more, mm. more easily. And for those listening, jhanas are, there's, there's effectively nine of these states that you can enter into um, when you reach certain types of concentration. You know, the, the Buddha, you know, the, his night of enlightenment passed through, you know, all the jhanas. And this company basically wants to make it more accessible as a, as a means of promoting well-being. So I started thinking about this and, and you know, what's the ethical responsibility of a company that's basically making the purpose of meditation to enter into these highly altered states. Right. And so that was kind of the way that I, I started thinking about this. And the more that I thought about it, at first I was, I'm, I think it might lead to aversion or attachment, craving, you know, spiritual bypassing. And then I thought about my own experience with meditation. And when I first started meditating, it was actually before I got sober, where I was absolutely attached to reaching, you know, transcendent states. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like until I actually, it's like, yes, I was grasping for these states and I was doing no integration work. I didn't, mm. I wasn't being with my, it was just like, yeah, I'm going to try to transcend in this experience. But what I did is I was committed to a practice and because I showed up twice a day for 20 minutes for six months and then eventually nine months, I couldn't, but I couldn't hide from my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like there was enough awareness being cultivated that eventually I'm like, okay, you have a problem and you need to get sober. So the point of this piece is like, yes, altered states are really important and the process and the integration is where these roots of change actually really get laid. Yeah. There's a funny thing comes to mind with that example. Uh, you could almost say that your initial reasoning to sit and meditate was wrong, right? Like you were like chasing the jhanas, you're chasing these altered states. But the fact is it actually got you to sit and then within the practice itself, you had a container to readjust your, your motives. And it reminds me of something that our mutual friend, Andrew Taggart told me once, which is um, for most people, it is going to take almost like a muscular goal oriented effort in the beginning. And then at some point 
you have like a, a realization. Yeah, that, that the, mirror, doesn't the miracle, that kind the of miracle happens. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was helpful for me because I'd always get in these like mental binds about like, well, it isn't, am I, am, am I being too effortful about meditation? I thought I'm not supposed to be effortful, but it's something like, at least my current understanding, I'd say my reason to sit doesn't have to be um, the same reason I have when I'm in the sit, you know, like what got me to sit down? Maybe I was like, I don't know, I want to, I want to experience the jhanas and that was my goal. But then once I'm there, a totally different thing happens once you start noticing the nature of your mind. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, as I'm, as I'm listening to you and, and this idea of like intentions versus what actually happens on the cushion, I'm thinking of my, my meditation teacher is a gentleman by the name of Matthew Immergut. He's also a, mm -hmm. a, a good friend and he is a co-author of a book called the mind illuminated mm -hmm. that I believe is one of, you know, the, the, the best books written on meditation in the last 20 years. That's the Kuladasa one. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, Matt yeah. was the co-author with Kuladasa. Cool. And, and Matt actually lives down the street from me up here and in, in the Hudson Valley. And, you know, if you look at that approach to meditation, you know, what they would, I, I think the way they refer to it as is like the six point preparation of how to even enter into the meditation is, I mean, I'm not getting it exactly right, but this is the essence. It's like, what's the, what's the state that you want to ultimately cultivate? Could be awareness, could be presence, could be awakening. Then what's your intention for this, for the session? It could be noting, could be following breath. It could be balancing peripheral awareness and concentration. I mean, there's so much, there's so many things you could practice in that book. Then the next point of preparation would be um, to look at expectations, both the danger of expectations and also, you know, sort of um, kind of letting expectations soften and dampen. The next one is diligence, like, you know, committing to be diligent in your practice, mm -hmm. not effortful, but diligent. And then the next is letting go of any thoughts that might come to surface, like just note, okay, I, you know, I have this podcast with Daniel coming up. Um, I have to, you know, write that email to that client. I have the session and just kind of note them, drop them and then get into posture and get comfortable. And so I, I say that as you can go through the six point preparation and still have a wildly different experience. Those things that you let go in that preparation might still rise to the surface. Right. And so, you know, what happens on the cushion is, you know, is, uh, it, it is a, is, is always a good reminder of no self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, I, it's funny. I have that book. I started reading it a few months ago, and then for some reason, I just didn't continue. And now I'm now you I'm excited have, you to should go have back Matt to... on the podcast. He would be he's he's an exceptional teacher. He's an exceptional oh, yeah, teacher. I'd, I'd love that. Maybe you can uh, intro us. Um, what's coming up for me now is how is your experience with mindfulness meditation uh, influence your coaching practice? I would say it's starting to influence my practice more so than it ever has. If I'm, if I'm being mm -hmm. honest, 
Um, for my clients, it's not a prerequisite though I'm starting to consider it based on the path I'm going down professionally in terms of my philosophy around, you know, how to move through transition. Now that said, um, in my coaching practice, whether you want to call it mindfulness, the, the terminology I really love, which is grounded in presence-based coaching that was developed by Doug Silsby, is self, self-observation. Mm. And if we want to have the opportunity to transform change, we have to be willing to observe ourselves in a, in a non-attached way. And maybe at first it's not, it's attached and that in our, or identified or conditioned, however we want to call it. But observation ultimately leads to choice. And so it's a very, very important part in terms of how I show up with my clients. Um, you know, even from the beginning of a session where we do a check-in, you know, some coaches will do like Jerry will do red, yellow, green for me. I, it's just like, Hey, what's here for you right now. Then I'll do a check-in. And I always am very, I, I like using what, what I learned under Jim and Diana. It's, it's conscious leadership group, which is just on arguables, you know, hmm. what thoughts are here, what emotions am I having? What sensations are here? And just kind of mirroring that and showing them. But when we get together, you know, my hope is that the clients are, are able to observe themselves in a bunch of different ways, whether it's through like parts work, um, mm-hmm. internal family systems, um, exploring values and so on and so forth. But yes, like mindfulness and self-observation is a really important part of the practice. Are you, fam- you must be familiar with Focusing by Eugene Gendlin. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, my, my teacher and coach Steve March of Aletheia, you know, draws in a lot of Gendlin's work. Yeah, I, I find um, with my clients, that's something that comes up quite a lot, especially because they're, they're so like high powered and busy and potentially at risk of being disembodied and not listening to the signals that are there for them to hear. Um, and I think this is very relevant to the special T that you have, which is, uh, like life transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just tell you how I understand that. And then maybe you can clarify some things, sure. but like I've, I've met a lot of people who've been very successful and then, you know, they reach their late forties or something and they're, they're like, what did I do for the last 10, 15 years? And they realize they don't really know how to live their lives. And those mm-hmm. questions are finally like bubbling up to the surface and, it's, it's a very delicate time where people, frankly, would benefit from having some help. And so uh, the stuff I read about what you do, I just imagine you're, you're helping people in those types of moments across their lives. Yeah. So there are a number of ways that we can talk about this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I should... I should for the audience say that I spent almost the first four years of coaching working with venture back CEOs and institutional investors and what I call leaders in transition. And what I ultimately 
started to feel into is where is my energy coming from in my coaching practice? And I did this whole look back. This was actually in October. I wrote about it where I, I basically was reading, I think a hidden wholeness by Parker Palmer. Great mm-hmm. book. It's a, it's a short book of essays of his. And he talks about how when we uh, are young, we get disabused of our gifts, to quote him. And that the second half of life is us trying to find our, our way back to those gifts. That's the essence of, of one right. of the points he makes in this, in one of the essays. And so I started looking backwards of, okay, how did I, how did I get into, how did I decide what my college major was? How did I decide to transfer from, you know, at the time I was studying health administration and education, how did I decide to go to business school instead and transfer majors? How did I end up in finance? How did I end up at Microsoft, right? How, like, and I just traced it all back and there was kind of a common line which was mostly around money and scarcity because that was a message I got when I was really young and, mm-hmm. and that if I'm successful professionally, then I'll get love and blah, 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 blah. Right. So I traced the sort of those core desires for belonging, love, security. That was kind of this uniting thread. And so I said, okay, it makes sense to me that I'm still coaching executives and investors because it's incredibly lucrative. It's safe. It's basically the world that I came from. Mm -hmm. So what would it look like if I built a practice from scratch focused on something that wasn't directly linked to advising and investing in the kinds of people that I had been in coaching and sitting a lot, I said, well, you know, if I go back to 2017, when I walked into the office of my partners and told them I was leaving, I would have fucking part of my language. I would have loved to have someone to help me through that journey. Cause there were a lot, there was long stretches of time where I was completely lost, disoriented, scared, couldn't get out of my own way. And so ultimately that's the practice I'm creating now or that I've created um, I officially pivoted it late last year in 2022 and it's gone super well. And what I do is I work essentially with high performers and, and change makers largely either entering in midlife or firmly in midlife, which I think anywhere from call it early to mid thirties to, you know, early fifties is usually the range though I, I do have a client that's, that's in his later fifties and I help them navigate where they are in their process Hmm. and it's evolving in real time. You know, it's, you know, it's an unfoldment meaning my philosophy and my practice around it, but the way in which I show up for my clients is to help them make sense of the sea of complexity that they're swimming in. And there's a common theme between those that I work with or that I, right. That I work with, which is this, it's the, these people are not 
necessarily um they have a lot of optionality yeah so it's not like hey i'm a career chief product officer or a product leader and i just want to stay on this path and get a, a a chief product officer role for that it's it's you kind of know the process right there's this set number of companies there's types of comp like there's a process for that. Whereas with this, this is more of like what I would consider in the complex domain where, um, bringing someone through a process, you don't know what's going to come out on the other end. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, yes, it's, I want to define my next chapter or find my next calling. If you like those words, um, or ultimately discover what I want to do with the rest of my life but these are unknowable problems and everybody's path is different. And so as such, you need a very different approach. And where I'm, where I'm going with this is it's less about, I mean, there is some reflection absolutely. And I think that's really important as one of my teachers, Benita Roy will say is like going back in time, you know, if we, what does she call a retrospective sense making? She's like, if you go and you look back, like the brain is going to give you content, whether that content is accurate or not, that's to be like, to be determined. Right. And so there, what I like to say is looking back is useful and there will be a variety of exercises that we'll do to look back in time to help you make sense of what's happened. However, I believe that the way we move through transition is actually grounded in the present. And this is coming off of the work of a, of a researcher at, uh, at a, a former researcher at IBM, uh, Dave Snowden that created mm-hmm. the Kinevin framework where, and this is a big, a big part of my work going forward where I believe to move through transition for those that I work with, isn't about following a process. It's more about, um, you know, because it's a complex context, it's more about kind of probing, sensing and responding. And so as such, it's helping my clients move through the world and almost see how they react and what feedback they're getting, you know, like what, what's resonating in their body, what's exciting them. And then, you know, if they're getting stuck or they feel conflicted, then that's when we can start to really look at some of these, what, whether you want to call them parts or condition tendencies and the way that these are getting in the way. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop here, but, um, there's an unfolding philosophy that's taking shape around helping people navigate and make sense of these complex situations that they're finding themselves up because transitions are complex especially mm. for the kinds of people that, uh, I'm working with. Oh, that's uh that was very well put. I want to highlight a few of the things you said there that really stood out to me. Um, the first is these are pos- people who are in positions of a lot of optionality. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that for many of us, most of our lives, that's what we're chasing. We're chasing optionality, especially when you don't know what to do. You know, people 
take jobs at consulting firms because it opens doors. And it's like, well, what doors do you want to open? It's like, I don't know. I'm just increasing my options. Or, or, or get an MBA would be another or, example. Yeah. Get, getting an MBA or getting a certain thing on your resume or even the whole process of making money. Um, like I did a big investigation on that where um, a friend of mine asked me, he's like, well, what exactly would you do if you had the amount of money that you want? And like, actually do the budget you know you got 10 million dollars like what are you going to do with it and then keep asking why on all those things yeah, yeah. i love those exercises. and i think that's actually the bottleneck it's and so basically a lot of these people end up in a position like that and then they haven't addressed that fundamental uh question of what are they going to do with all those options um the other thing you mentioned is the kinefin framework and i think a lot of the listeners will know what it is but just to kind of bring people aboard um it's a two by two and um Maybe, maybe you can explain it better than me, but there's, there's a chaotic, there's complicated, there's complex. What is the, what is the fourth one that I'm missing? Uh, simple. Simple. So basically there's three, four different classes of problems and they all require different approaches. And often we think we're dealing with a complicated problem set when it's actually a complex one. And you're talking about transitions as being complex. And the approach there is in the present. And then you probe and you sense, like you, you take a little bit and, and then, yep. and you see how it affects you. So I, I'm wondering, I know, I know there's at least one listener. Like I, I know a specific person who's actually going through a transition right now mm-hmm. that fully fits this, uh, the, the, the example that you're referring to. I wonder if you could give any practical suggestions for how someone could apply the probe sense respond approach yeah. if they're in a situation like that. Yeah, well, I think there is. Um, I, th- I think there's different ways into this. I think one one way is there is the work of a uh, researcher from Stanford many years ago wrote about this this concept of possible selves. Her name is uh, Hazel Marcus. Wrote about possible selves. So I think you can anchor the exploration in possible roles, possible selves, possible ways of being. And ultimately um, choosing the next best step. So instead of saying, so, okay, like let's, let's use my example as like my, my case where Mm -hmm. it started with an inkling that I might want to coach. It wasn't, Oh, I'm going to go research all these different coaching programs, it was, I'm going to reach out to Jerry. Like I'm attracted. Like I feel in my body attracted to this man and what Mm. he's talking about. And I see the need for it. I'm just going to reach out. Then eventually I go on a retreat. And so it's about kind of taking a step towards that and then seeing how your body, how your nervous system is is activated and where your curiosity goes and i think like if i'm if i'm being honest what i find is that people tuning into their i know this might come across as woo or you know being in alignment you know head heart and gut like where i feel like clear and and like it aligned like this feels like the right thing not like I have to do this or I should do this. It's no, I, I want to do this. Like this 
feels good to my body to move in this direction. So I would say I would, I would encourage whoever in the audience is in this position is to think about it that way, where we have a tendency to want to know five moves ahead because right. we want to know the path because we want it to be predictable. We want to know that there are lines of progress but when we're moving through complex space, we're going to feel disoriented because we don't know what efforts are ultimately going to bear fruit. Like we could spend a weekend writing a first draft on something and then eventually just rip it up. Or we could spend a 30 minute, you know, morning pages session and just get the spark of insight that then leads to. So it's, it's, it's not a flow, it's a flux, meaning input doesn't necessarily equal the same output. Like a lot mm. of effort can be futile, a small effort can be profound. So um, what, what am I trying to say here is that keeping this in mind is really important and that it's unsexy to stay, it's step by step. And it's about tuning into what excites you and what energizes you and where your curiosity goes and, you know, where you're feeling stuck or scared or triggered or however you want to say it is then that's the, that's the opportunity to do the work, right. And mm -hmm. to see, you know, what is the patterning that is ultimately getting in the way. Yeah. If I were to, compress that in a way that, you know, hopefully minimally distorts it. It's something like you want to optimize for congruent interestingness. So there's going to be things in your immediate vicinity that call, call out to you that they just seem interesting and it's kind of inexplicable. Like you re sending that cold email to that coach. Um, and then some of those things are going to feel very aligned and congruent in your body. Um, and then that probably presupposes a certain amount of awareness of what's going on in the body. And perhaps some of those things don't feel fully aligned. It feels like there's a part of you that's like, actually, I don't know if I should do that, even though it's calling forth to me. And so perhaps if you, if you find things that fit both those criteria, you go, you go act on it and then you re reassess and then just have faith that things are going to unfold as opposed to, you know, having some plan that where you're going to be in like three quarters or something. Yeah. And I think the word you literally took the word out of my mouth. Cause I was, I was, I was literally going to say that it requires faith and trust. Mm. But if, if we step back, let's go to the macro level. Okay. Change is a natural process. We see mm. it in the, at the level of the cosmos and we see it at the subatomic level. And if Part of what I help my clients see is just by moving around the world, through the world, or sitting at our desk and opening our inbox, things are unfolding around us all the time that are completely out of our control. Not all the time. Every second of every day, things are unfolding around us. We are, we are embedded in complex systems in environments, in ecosystems that are alive, mm -hmm. 
that have life pulsing through them. So when we start to see this, it's not that we take our hands off the wheel and we lose all agency. We can put aside the free will debate. Mm-hmm. What I, the way that I phrase it is it's, it's not about losing control. It's seeing that the world behaves in a different way it is way more interconnected. And so how can we be an active participant and notice when, when things are, feel like we're, we're going with the flow of the unfolding and when we feel like we're fighting it. Hmm. And so those are also things that I do with my clients to be able to see, because in my own experience, especially early in my transition, I was, there was a lot of fighting, right? Mm. There was, there was a lot of conditioning patterns, habits that eventually I had to make conscious through like many years of working with highly skilled practitioners. And it, in, in a lot of ways, you know, it's, there was something you actually said earlier is this idea of, um, how would I do it, it? Almost like this, you know, Jung would call it individuation, mm-hmm. you know, whether you want to call it deconditioning. And when we get to midlife, it's that we've lived long enough to know ourselves, right? And maybe life hasn't unfolded in quite the way that we expected or wanted, or we put in all of this effort thinking that if we did that and we achieved some sort of success, then all of our problems would fade away. And we realize that that's not the case. We're, you know, we're, we're still the same person in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. And so with that, we, we start to notice it. And for many that can be scary, right? It also is leading me to think of the book, the denial of death by Ernest Becker. Yeah. Right. Where, you know, what he would call like immortality projects, where we feel like we have to strive and achieve and build because we want to create a legacy. And so when we start to notice these patterns and these tendencies and we start to have compassion for them and eventually choose a different way of being through, you know, a variety of means it gives us a lot more agency to ultimately choose the kind of life that we want. And instead of living the life for my, you know, that I thought my dad wanted or my college advisor for recommending Microsoft. And, you know, I've ended up there for five years of my life off that recommendation. And like, eventually we can reclaim it for ourselves and say, okay, like this is the life I was living for whatever reason and now I'm going to choose a different path because I'm more oriented towards these values and these ways of being. Yeah. It's an interesting. You mentioned young because, um, I was thinking like, what are some signals that you're on the right track when you're doing this complex, um, navigation and the one example that comes up in my own life. And this is one of my more woo perspectives. Um, but I believe because of personal empiricism. That's, that's welcome here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could sense that. Um, it's that, uh, synchronicities abound. So this is, this has been a big thing for me where when I 
find the congruent, the, you know, the congruent interestingness optimization, which uh, is probably a better phrase for that, but you know what I mean? Um, inevitably, a bunch of random mystical synchronicities just start happening one after the other. And it's almost like you're, you're chasing them. And yeah, I, I, I like actually lead my, I make decisions based on that. Like, I, it's not just not a fun idea for me. I actually make life decisions based on these synchronicities. So I, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on, on synchronicities or anything else that's kind of in orbit of that type of stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I love the word synchronicity. In fact, I, I started writing a piece on it earlier this year and I, 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 I put it down, but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I liken it to, I forget who said this, but it's like the, the harder I work, the luckier I get mm-hmm. where it's this idea is like, if we take a step forward and let's say it's, Hey, I want to start a podcast. And it's like, the first step is I'm going to go write a brief for a podcast then I'm going to go tell five friends. And then a friend of a friend is like, Hey, I was thinking about starting a podcast in that area. Do you want to team up? Sure. Like what happens is, is like when we start to like become an active participant in life Mm -hmm. and we start moving through the world, telling people, sharing online, um, learning entirely new things that, were just unknown to us, completely out of our, our awareness, we start forming all these new connections in our, in our head and then our unconscious and our conscious, like our unconscious is processing it. And then consciously we start to recognize when we're, where it's like, you know, I forget what that, I don't even know if this is what it's called. I forget that, but it's like, if it's like, think about, you know, a red, red Lamborghini or red cars, and then you drive out around mm-hmm. and all you see is red cars. It, I think it's a very similar effect and related to this and synchronicity is, you know, as we move through the world and like opportunities open up, I, I love this terminology that, or this term that was, was, um, developed at, by Stuart Kaufman at the Santa Fe Institute, um, which is the adjacent possible that right. was then popularized and written about extensively by Stephen Johnson, who wrote the book Where Good Ideas Come From. And there is um, there is a passage in the book where um, I, I want to bring it up because I think it is it is just so beautiful and, you know, really, really encapsulates. I I really just want to bring it up because it's, 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 it's really perfect. Um, we can put a hold on the passage as well while we do that. I wonder if it's the same one because a passage popped into my head. Okay, here it is. And this is from, you know, Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson. And he says, think of the adjacent possible as a house that magically expands with each door you open. You begin in a room with four doors, each leading to a new room that you haven't visited yet. Those four rooms are the adjacent possible. 
But once you open one of those doors and stroll into that room, three new doors appear, each leading to a brand new room that you couldn't have reached from your original starting point. Keep opening new doors and eventually you'll have built a palace. Mm. And so I believe that as we move through the world and as we look, follow our natural curiosity and our energy and we learn about something new and we have that conversation, it's opening up new possibilities. And those new possibilities, we could call them serendipity, right? Those could be an opportunity that you know magically comes in, or it could be a new insight, a new idea where and to me, this is a big part of my philosophy around change and transition is that we have to walk through the doors to see what's, what opportunities are now present. Mm -hmm. um, how does fear play into this? Fear. Well, fear is very natural in transition. So if you think about, let's... Let's back up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a geek when it comes to this stuff. I, I try to read everything I can. And so like, let's just look at um, probably the best known contemporary model of transition, which is the Bridges Transition Model by William Bridges, who wrote you know, the, the book Transitions. He, he would say, and this isn't new, I mean, like, you know, this is included in Buddhist texts, uh, around, you know, the Bardos and things of that nature, even, you know, um, Van Gennep who wrote about like rites of passage and things like that. Like he wrote about it, but anyhow, let's go back to bridges bridges is the three stages. There's the ending, the middle and the beginning. Okay. Mm -hmm. And transitions begin with the end. And when we keep that in mind, what happens in the ending, most people, by the way, if, if I'm being honest, I did the same thing too, is we just hit fast forward and we don't even think about the, the ending. We don't grieve it. We mm, don't think mm. about any resentments that we're now carrying forward. We just zoom past it and we're on to the next thing and, you know, sayonara for right. the most part, right? Because it's, hey, like I'm moving on to the next thing and hopefully quickly. In the ending, there's a lot of opportunity. Like I'm working with an exceptionally talented founder right now who left the company he, he founded and a year later still has lots of resentment towards his co-founder. A tremendous mm -hmm. amount of resentment. All of these unprocessed emotions because he didn't see it as an ending. Like he saw it as an ending, but quickly it was like, I'm on to my next thing. Right. What happens coming back to fear, sorry, I was get, going on a little tangent, is it's very disorienting when, we, when we're in this ending period and now we're moving into the liminal space because um, our identity, like who we thought we, are, we were, we no longer are. So what happens is in the ending, we disengage we dismantle like old routines, habits, maybe relationships. We disidentify, right? We, we, we lose a part of our identity. 
that we may have spent a lot of time cultivating, investing in, so on and so forth. We dis, um, disenchant, which is basically now become disenchanted with the world that we came from, all the things we believed, all the Kool-Aid we drank, all the stories we told ourselves about how amazing the world we were living in was. And now we see it on the outside and we become disenchanted and then disorientation. So mm. like those five things happening can be very destabilizing and fear. So if we're thinking about transition, we can look at the, like it is the person fearful because they're disoriented and lost and don't know how to proceed? Or is it that they've oriented around a future self coming back to Hazel's work or a future path, you know, an odyssey, if you want to look at designing your life, um, and that they're afraid, like they, they're out of their comfort zone. Like they have to either build new capabilities or step into new ways of being and there's fear on that. So when working with someone in transition, there's actually multiple types of fear that could be present. Mm -hmm. You know, like fear of just being really fucking uncomfortable and, and at like existential questions to fear of like, Hey, I might, I'm out of my comfort zone and I'm not necessarily sure how to move beyond that. Yeah, that's, um, I really like that taxonomy because it gives you a basis to prompt yourself to discover what it is that you're afraid of. And I, I always love this advice that you should, uh, you should just know your fears. You don't necessarily have to overcome them, but at least be honest about what they are, you know, rush right up to the edge of your fear and, and just be intimate with it without necessarily putting pressure on yourself to overcome it. Um, and so having a framework like that might, might help somebody like tune into the thing that they're afraid of. And I think the reason why I asked the question about fear is that I, I, my sense is that these, um, explorations in the complex ontology, the, the main thing that, um, holds people back, the main bottleneck is, uh, is insufficient courage. I think like if you were to dose somebody with like one trait, to help them navigate this space, it would be something like courage or faith. And I feel like in large part, say again, or faith it's cousin or yeah. And then there's a very interesting relationship with those two. Um, and what I was going to say is that I think that the role of a coach or a friend or anyone of support is one of like an encourager in large part. Um, and yeah, you can sometimes, uh, courage is needed to maintain faith. And mm -hmm. so, as we kind of come to a close here, um, I'm curious how you, uh, like, let's say you're dealing with a client who is afraid and that's kind of been identified. Like, you know what? I'm just afraid of like, what's next? Or I'm afraid of letting go of this identity that I've spent all these years building up. Or I'm afraid of, of losing my, my salary and you know, my quality which, of life. Which, and, which is a big one. Yeah. What, what sort of things do you do to encourage them? in those moments. Mm -hmm. There's also the fear of failure. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's just one quick point about this. The fear of failure is, is one that can get in the way of running simple experiments. Mm -hmm. 
So for example, I launched a podcast. I did eight episodes. I enjoyed it. I didn't feel like I was called to be a podcaster. And I said, you know what? I'm going to put it on hold, right? And some people are afraid of, of quitting, putting things hold because they've invested. So they just keep on going even though, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I'm working with someone right now that's really afraid of choosing the wrong thing. They've had a lot of success. Mm-hmm. And so if we step back, you know, how do we approach this? And I, first of all, I think fear is a, is a really, really good, um, like useful emotion, right? Um, oftentimes we look at, and I got this from, from my teachers at conscious leadership group, which is like, okay, well, you're, 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 you're scared, you're threatened, you know, using their parlance, you're below the line. Let's look at what's underneath it. We could do parts work to say, okay, what's, you know, let's go get to know this part. We also could just simply say, okay, well, what's at threat here? What's that threat? Is it security? You know, is it control? Mm-hmm. Is it approval? And start to look at it from that angle. Um, we can spend a lot of time, like, express the fear fully. Like, what would a full expression of the fear look like for you right here? Right. And what we often find is the thing that is that is is. is security control or approval, or maybe all three, right? I was working right. with, a, with a founder yesterday who's in transition and she's like, yeah, all three of these things are present. And, you know, some amount of fear can be healthy. It's, we want to understand what's at the core so we can ultimately choose how we want to move forward, right? It's the, um, you know, I forget that I wrote about it, but now it's escaping me, but that bell curve around, like, we want to be outside of our, like, we want to go outside of our comfort zone into our growth and learning zones, but we have to be, you know, we have to cultivate that quality of courage, or we have to cultivate that, that, that faith and I think there's a way to do it where we like titrate, you know, it's similar to like trauma mm. work where with somatics, where you're bringing someone, you, you, you help them anchor where a place where they feel solid and stable that they can come back to, whether the breath, whatever it might be, and then t- like touch into it. Okay. Come back. How was that? Okay. We're going to now like go back to it. And so I think there's ways of working with fear where you can you can touch it, you can come back to it and know that you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And some things you're not going to know. And you just right. have to take a leap of faith and trust in, in how things are going to unfold. Yeah, it's uh, the, what's coming up for me there is like the interesting relationship between courage, faith, and humility. Mm. Because I had like this image of someone going to the gym And it's like their first day. So they're not going to squat three plates because they'll get injured and they should be afraid of doing something like that. But if they have the humility to just work with the bar and get good form without any weight on the bar, and if they have the faith that 
by doing incremental steps like that across time, they could get to three plates. Um, then, then they'll get to where they want to go. And I feel like a lot of what I end up doing when I'm coaching people through these types of moments is breaking things down in a way like that so that they can see a step that they are willing to take towards a thing that they're afraid of. And then obviously the world changes once you take that step and then new affordances, new doors open up in the, in the palace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, as I'm listening to you, Dan, I, I can't help but think of my own experience before I left VC. Well, well, and this was when I was a partner at primary. Mm. I was, you know, doing well financially. Look, I was a partner at a VC firm, you know, I wasn't making a few money, but like things were taken care of. And I ran a model a financial model that was like, okay, here's, here's a, a best guess at what a, my coaching practice will generate. Hmm. And it ended up being like half of what I was making as an investor. And at a certain point in time, I had to look at those numbers and be like, okay, like this is your best guess. And you have to hmm. be willing to go and just do this even if you're not going to make as much as, as you do now at the prime of your career. And I say this in quotes, prime of your career, which I think right. prime is a, is a, a thing, a word that we could we probably will we'll write an essay on at some point. But I, t I had to take the leap as scared shitless as I was, especially with, you know, with a one, you know, one year old at home mm. and aspirations to have more kids and, live in New York and do the whole thing I've been doing. And guess what? Reality was I blew all those expectations out of the water once I yeah. really put myself into it. And so, you know, there's times that we, you know, that we don't see all the possibility and all the potential in ourselves because, you know, we're, we're scared or because we don't, we, we can't see how things are going to unfold. Yeah, it's a it's remarkable how much your story parallels mine, um, and yeah, I think uh, the lesson there for me was always this idea of taking a leap of faith um, and trusting that the story will you, you will have like new abilities on the other side of that, and the story just keeps going. And at the end of the day, we're not really what we what we ultimately want is not money or optionality or status. Like those are, you know, things that will stand in for some of our deeper desires. And for me, I think it's much better to have like a, a life of adventure um, and have like an optimal relationship with risk as opposed to an excess of security. Cause I don't mm -hmm. even think there is such thing as true security. Yeah. And that, and that and there's not right. We, we see it every Minute, minute to minute when things arise and pass away, right? Arise and pass away, right? And we want to believe that security is a thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I think about a client of mine, a former client who I worked with for two years, love, 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 love this human being. And he has more money than he'll ever, he'll ever know what to do with. And, um, despite this, he doesn't feel like he has freedom mm -hmm. and he wants to cultivate freedom 
and you know when when this happens down the road then xyz then i can go and open up a family office and do the style of investing that i want and and my answer to him was how are all the ways you're free right now hmm. and when we did that exploration he saw that the thing he thought was going to come down the road 10 years really it, that quality is here if he chooses to see it. Right. Yeah. To kind of close on a, a, a like tweet summary of that, there's a quote I really like, which is um, wealth doesn't lead to independence. It's the other way around. And it's I think so that's true. Mostly true. I yeah. mean, it's, it's the life I, it, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine in the investment business two weeks ago, mm -hmm. guy I'd known for o over 15 years now. And He's still in the grind, going to meetups, dinners, chasing startups and working the 60, 70 hours a week. And I look at my life now and it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm likely not going to have tens of millions of dollars in the bank one day. Right. I'm, um, but I feel like I have so much freedom and so much mm -hmm. autonomy and I love what I do and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I just think back to what I was striving for when I was investing. And now it's like, Oh, I, I have everything I want. And it required me to actually step away from that world and chasing things that I thought I wanted, but in reality I didn't want. It's like the alchemist, the thing, the thing that he was looking for was right under his nose the whole time. Steve, where can people find you? Well, um, I would say Twitter, but I'm on a, I'm on a hiatus. Um, That's which, right. You took a which break. has been really nice. Um, so I, you can still follow me on Twitter. I'm sure I'll, I'll make a reappearance at some point. Um, at Schlaff on Twitter. You can find me on my website, which is schlaff.co. Or you can find me at Substack at uh, Where the Road Bends. All those links will be in the show notes.